Hello and welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentation in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conran and I'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact checkers from the Full Fact team. Now this week, Brexit has been back in the news, with Boris Johnson confirming a trade deal between the UK and Australia. Meanwhile, a dispute between the UK and the EU over sausages is causing problems in Northern Ireland. So to take on some Brexit facts, old and new, I'm joined by Full Fact CEO Will Moy. Hi, Will. Hi. And fact checker Abbas Panjwani. Hi, Abbas. Hi, good morning. Now, there's a lot of Brexit stories and they hinge on a deep understanding of trade deals and tariffs. But Will, do the public actually have the encyclopedic knowledge of international trade that sometimes is expected them tariffs quotas how are people meant to follow the answer is no (laughs) of course most of us don't have the knowledge we need to understand a discussion of a trade agreement myself included there are probably i don't know 10 people in the country who really understand the nuts and bolts of trade agreements but i think that there are some sort of broad principles that we can all understand that are worth thinking about. It's not just about how high are the tariffs and therefore how expensive is it to import things. It's also about what are called non-tariff barriers, i.e. how much paperwork is there involved in importing things, how compatible are the two markets involved. But also there are some really low-hanging fruit in the kind of misunderstandings we've seen. Um, I'm sure Abbas will talk about some of our fact-checking in this area, but it's not all nuanced misunderstandings of international trade law. I think the most important thing, actually, is thinking about who wins and who loses from trade agreements. And sometimes I think that gets hidden in the way we talk about it. So with the deal with Australia we've seen talked about this week, a lot of the emphasis has been on the overall impact on the economy. What is the value of this to the economy as a whole? But the other side of the story is that trade agreements create winners and losers. They boost some sectors of the economy and they might boost some sectors of the other country's economy at the cost of our own sector of that of the economy. So some people might get jobs out of a trade deal, but some people might lose jobs out of a trade deal. And I think that one of the really important things that's going to be powerful as we go through more and more of these trade deals is more scrutiny of not just what's the overall effect of the economy, but what is the effect on specific people's lives of these deals? And that's the question I'd like to see asked and answered more. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think there is a desire to try and chase after a specific statistic which looks at the the whole thing in the round. So we've seen this week with the Australia trade deal, a lot of people picking on the fact that it will only deliver a 0.02% boost to GDP and saying, therefore, it's worthless. But there is more nuance there. And what does 0.02% of GDP actually mean? No one knows how that feels. No one can really quantify that and and say what it means to them and I think it is it does hide the fact that actually this will have a much bigger effect on some people such as people uh, who are farmers uh, working with livestock where Australia has you know now more of a competitive advantage with the coming deal and it will benefit other people to a greater extent so whilst the overall balance might be quite meaningless it doesn't mean we shouldn't ignore it just because of that very small figure that's pumped out at the end which could may you know may well be just incorrect because economic projections are notoriously difficult and you know the government doesn't have a particularly good track record with with modeling this stuff anyway can you uh 
perhaps talk us through some of the common pitfalls that you have seen when fact-checking things around trade deals? Where is it that we usually get things wrong? So one big pitfall is to do with the tariff tables, which are incredibly long, detailed, complex tables held by the European Commission, HMRC, each government will have them, because they're not really meant for journalists or the public. They're meant for people who know what they're doing with them. So one problem you get, for example, is if you look at, say, a trade table, look at uh, importing cocoa, say, from Botswana, or wherever it may be in sub-Saharan Africa, you will see that there's a tariff listed there, okay, in the EU's trade tables. And it will say this is a tariff that applies to all countries. It's a third country duty. And so you may think that, oh, the EU is putting this kind of punitive tariff on processed cocoa coming in from some of the poorest countries in the world. And indeed, this was a line that was repeated by many people during the Brexit debate. There was an influential kind of article written online by a late Harvard professor saying the EU is a protectionist bloc and is harming kind of sub-Saharan African cocoa producers. In fact, the EU waives all of those tariffs um, for the poorest countries around the world. So there is no tariff on most of these poor countries coming in. And you wouldn't know that by looking at the table because it doesn't just say, oh, this doesn't apply to wherever it may be, Botswana or Ghana or wherever it is. It just says there's this tariff, but there's this rule, which means that you don't need to worry about that. There are also issues where people just sort of lose their common sense. So we saw um, an article in The Sun, which was talking about the uh, the tariffs on wine. And it talked about how... Um, uh, a half litre uh, of wine would be subject to an £11.45 tariff um, from the EU. And it's just because they had misinterpreted HL as half litre, when in fact it means hectolitre, which is 100 litres. Oh, So it's quite a simple mistake there. But it, it's quite a big one. Yeah, it's quite a big one. And I th- But I think it's the, it's the fact that these things are quite abstract. None of us do this stuff. None of us import and export. Well, you you can't you can't have an eleven pound forty five tariff on a half liter of wine. If you've been to a supermarket, you know that's not what the tariff is, right? You know you can get wine from any country across the world for seven pound or less, five, six pound or less, whatever it is. There just isn't that tariff. That tariff doesn't exist. But in our efforts to try and understand something quickly that is confusing and abstract, you know, pe- people can make these kind of really basic errors. And then we've seen sort of information arguably twisted by the government when the government's uh, kind of rolled over its Japan trade deal and the Department of International Trade says that, you know, soy sauce will be cheaper to import now because of our trade deal with Japan. In fact, soy sauce has a 0% tariff with the EU and we were just maintaining that tariff. But the Department of International Trade was sort of arguing that, well, if we left that deal, then there would be tariffs and therefore the new deal would make things cheaper. But it's you know, it, it wouldn't be making things cheaper. It would be maintaining a status quo that was only at risk due to the actions of the government that are now trying to champion the new deal. So either by mistake or, you know, deliberately, we've seen kind of tariff information be sort of manipulated or misinterpreted to, you know, essentially cause misinformation. Will, we have been saying how, and Abbas has been explaining how difficult it is, you know, when you go into the supermarket, you're not thinking about how much tariff is there on this, and am I paying a little bit more, a little bit less? But the truth is that these trade deals, even if 
Um, again, as Abbas described, the benefit has been described as 0.02% over the course of five to 10 years or however much it is. But they are important, though, those trade deals, because they set a precedent. They set a precedent of what is to come, perhaps. And the one thing that we have been told about trade deals is that once you do a trade deal with a country, in this case, Australia, then it really affects the person who you do your next trade with, because they will look at the last trade deal you did and go on, well, hang on a minute, you gave those to Australia, you gave these benefits to Japan, we want the same thing. So I guess the impact, as you said, can be a lot bigger than just 0.02% of GDP. Well, that's probably right. Um, nobody's ever asked me to negotiate a trade deal. Um, Not but... yet, Will. Not yet. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm always looking for that exciting promotion. It's not like we're not busy <laughs> enough fact-checking. Um, yeah, we're, we're at a time, obviously, where this country is in negotiations with lots of other countries. And it's unimaginable that they're not all paying attention to what we're doing when we're talking to the other countries, the agreements we reach. And they're all going to be negotiating in their best interests. And the UK is going to try to negotiate in what our government feels are our best interests. And it's a competitive process. So yes, every trade agreement matters from that point of view. And it's interesting that Parliament has been asking for more scrutiny of trade agreements. There's been quite a large debate on whether the House of Commons and the House of Lords have enough of a role scrutinising trade agreements and actually saying whether we're getting value, whether they're having the impacts we want. And I think as our economy will be reshaped in parts possibly quite large parts, by trade agreements we make. So they change the kind of competition that different parts of our economy are shaped shaped by and facing. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to want more scrutiny of how this happens. And we need really good information about that. We do need experts reporting to Parliament about it. And we do need experts bodies informing that debate because... I, I too, um, might go into the pub one day and order a hectolitre of wine and be confused when <laughs> the barrels arrive. I do love that. Abbas, we've been talking about uh, tariffs, quotas, all the rest. What has any of this got to do with sausages, though? Yeah, so we're coming to a bit of a crunch point um, ahead of the Great British Barbecue Summer, which is a bit worrying for people in Northern Ireland, perhaps, which is that at the end of the month, the EU's grace period, which basically allowed chilled meats to continue to come from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, will end. So the EU doesn't allow chilled meats from outside of the single market to come into the block. Northern Ireland is in the single market, essentially, for goods, and GB is not. And so at the end of the month, there is this risk that you know, Boris Johnson promised that sausages would be able to, you know, British sausages would be able to be sold in Belfast. That looks like it's at risk. And the negotiators are working now to try and, you know, smooth that over. But I think this speaks to an important point about reporting of of trade deals, uh, which we're guilty of as much as anyone else, which is there is a focus on tariffs and how much things will cost and GDP changes and these very numerical things which can be easy to create a headline out of or you know to say this is how much the price of x will drop or increase and I think that at the time uh, you know last year when it looked like we were not going to have no trade deal we were going to continue with uh, the free trade agreement we had with the EU broadly speaking and it was lauded and it looked like things were going to continue as normal there was less 
kind of uh, reporting on less concern about all of these actually quite important things to do with sanitary standards and animal health certificates and all of these non-tariff barriers that would come in and are now having effect. We saw massive issues with uh, shellfish exports at the beginning of the year due to, you know, these sorts of concerns, not about tariffs, but about, you know, the the, the non-tariff barriers. We're now seeing this with chilled meats. So in terms of public understanding of the impact of trade deals and what they mean, I think it's a really difficult subject anyway, but actually the easiest bits to understand about it probably are those tariff impacts, which means they get reported on more and can kind of hide the other impacts, you know, of trade deals. And a lot of it is around, yeah, these non-tariff barriers. Uh, Thank you both. I'm sure this is something that we are going to come back to, uh, well, with more trade deals as and when they appear. Uh, So, Will, thank you. Abbas, also, thank you very much. Now, those watching the third game at this summer's European Football Championships were shocked when Denmark's Christian Eriksen suddenly collapsed, having suffered a cardiac arrest. Now, thankfully, Mr. Eriksen is now in a stable condition. Some people, however, wasted little time in exploiting the tragedy for their own means. Within hours, social media was awash with claims that Mr. Eriksen had recently received the Pfizer vaccine, falsely blaming the incident on this. Now, making her debut on Full Fat Podcast and on hand to debunk this one is Dr. Daniela de Bloch-Golding. Uh, Daniela, Welcome. Hello. Now, uh, look, Daniela, how did this one get around so quickly? Well, I think, you know, it was a scary event for people to watch and for people to see. And so I think people took to social media quite quickly about it. And then the posts started to kind of become infused with the reports that kind of said that it had been confirmed by a medical official from Inter Milan saying that it had been confirmed on an Italian radio station called Radio Sportiva. So that kind of added legitimacy really to um, people's initial fears. We now know that um, Radio Sportiva have come out and said that this never happened. The official didn't confirm any kind of recent Pfizer vaccine. And the Interland chief executive has now said that Ericsson has never had the vaccine and they're not aware that he's ever had COVID. And so it seems that this was kind of plucked out of nowhere. I guess one happy consequence of this whole incident has been a reported rise in the interest of first aid courses. Similarly, of course, we've seen a rise of graphics on social media offering instructions on CPR. But we need to be careful here, Daniela, don't we? Because, of course, we don't know where those graphics come from and we don't know who's put together that advice. Sometimes when these things are shared, particularly when it comes to medical information and that's going across borders, things can be missed, details can be missed and the advice can vary between countries. So we're actually putting a fact check together um, at the moment. And the best advice is, you know, you may be prompted by something you see on social media, but then go away and check it, check it with your trusted resources. And in the UK for something like CPR, that would be the NHS website or um, the British Resuscitation Council. Daniela, before we go, it, it has been brought to the attention of many people how important um, CPR is. In, in your view uh, as a doctor, those first moments as 
you're waiting for help. How important is it to, to take those right actions? How important is it that most of us do know what to do in those first moments? It is absolutely vital. The first thing is to recognise that something serious has happened. You know, everyone's scared of, of those moments um, and you, ha- you can have a bit of a freeze reaction. But the first thing is to recognise someone's, you know, seriously unwell. The other thing is, it's you know, it's really great. The more people that can know how to do CPR, know how to do that basic first aid, the more likely someone is to have a good outcome from an event like this. A really close family member of mine actually had a cardiac arrest on a bus and someone did CPR and... Um, they live to tell the tale. So, you know, we're forever thankful to that stranger. And uh, yeah, ev- everyone should and can learn to do CPR. Uh, uh, Dr. Daniela de Block-Golden, uh, perfect debut. Thank you. I look forward to uh, some more chats down the line. Thank you for that. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial. And you can read more about the commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about.